morning, Bethel. Morning. Glad to see all of you on this wonderful Sunday morning. We are in week three of Get In The Game, the series that we started at the beginning of the year, talking about getting in the game as far as following, being a follower of Christ. Have you ever had an old friend contact you, maybe someone from high school or college, and they said, let's, let's reconnect. And you thought, oh, this is so great. This is so nice. This person wants to reconnect with me. And you get together for dinner or coffee or whatever, and you, you find out that the reason why they wanted to connect, there was a, an ulterior motive. They didn't want to, reconnect, they didn't want to rekindle that, that old re relationship and become good friends again. They wanted to sell you some shakes or some natural oils or Herbalife or whatever it might be that they are you know, wanting to, to sell. As a pastor, I get contacted about these all the time because they know I have a network of people. So I get you know, insurance people and investment people that want to meet together to tell me what they have. You know, when we were, my wife and I were newlyweds, um, we had a, a young family our age invite us over for dinner, and we thought, oh, this would be cool. These would be some, you know, friends our age that we can connect with, and this is so nice. They're inviting us over for dinner. Then after dinner, he popped open his computer and started to tell us about Amway and how he wanted to get us involved in Amway, and I'm like, oh, this is not what I was hoping for, but, you know, we don't like the feeling of being used, especially when someone takes advantage of a relationship. You know, we're going to see today that Jesus' disciples initially started following Jesus because of what they thought they could get out of it. You know, I think many of us come into the Christian faith with that same attitude as the attitude of a consumer for what we can get out of Jesus and not coming to him because we want to be his follower. You know, if you're a follower of the teachings of Christ, the truth is, if you apply those teachings to your life, you will be a better husband, wife, mother, father, a better employee. Even if you don't think Jesus is divine, even if you don't think the Bible is the word of God, if you follow the teachings of Jesus, you will become a better person. All of that serves you and it works for you. But let me tell you something interesting. When you read the New Testament, all of Jesus' followers, they start that way. They all start with the attitude of, what's in it for me? What is in it for me? And getting in the game starts with going from the attitude of a consumer, of what am I going to get out of this, to becoming a follower of Christ. Peter, the Apostle Peter, will see that he left his dad to follow this new rabbi named Jesus, and he left his dad in the fishing business to follow him. So during the middle of one of Jesus' lessons about rich people, this is what Peter says, because at this point in Peter's life, it's all about Peter. He said in Matthew 19, 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Come on, Jesus, tell me, what are we going to have? Because I don't mind following Jesus, but surely there's a big reward at the, whole, at the end of this whole thing. Come on, Jesus, what is it? Then at the very end of Jesus' ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane, the New Testament tells us that all of his followers abandoned him. 
They all unfollowed Jesus at the same time. Why? Because if Jesus was arrested, there will be no benefit for them. And they all abandoned Jesus during that Passion Week. Why? Because they were, at this point in their relationship, they were consumers, looking at what they could get out of it more than they were true followers. They were following as long as it worked out for them. I think every single one of us, we start out that way. But here's the interesting thing. After they all abandoned Jesus, when you get to the end of the Gospels, they're all back. And Jesus forgives them. The same group of cowards who just used him, the same group of people went into Jerusalem and the rest of the known world and gave their lives not for what Jesus taught, but they gave their lives for what they saw. And what they saw was a resurrected Jesus. A Jesus who came up out of the grave. And in that moment, they gave up on their own personal agendas and they embraced God's agenda for the rest of their lives. They decided to get in the game by becoming fully fledged followers of Jesus. But it took a while. It was a process. As we're going to see today, not all of them made that transition. But there is one disciple in particular, one of the famous or infamous people in all of history, who you know, his name is Judas Iscariot. Judas saw Jesus just like the rest of the apostles. You know, naming children after Bible characters, especially those of the apostles, is quite popular. You know, there's a lot of kids in the name John, James, Peter. You know, there's a lot of, have you ever heard of a child named Judas? If not, there's a, there's a few names in the Bible. It's funny how even today, people who are not Christians have never cracked open the Bible in their lives, would never think about naming a child Judas. It's amazing how even the Christian um, has flowed into a, even a secular culture. You know, another, just off the top, maybe not even my notes. Another one that, that comes, have you ever heard of a, a girl named Jezebel. No, another Bible name in there. You know, evil, evil, wicked queen in the Old Testament. But it's funny, you never hear that. It's always as a, a, a negative, going back to the, the, the Bible here. So, you know, I, I think all of us start out with this, this idea of being consumers. And we see Judas here. Judas started out this way. Judas saw Jesus just like the rest of the apostles. Their view was that God was going to deliver Israel from the Romans, kick out the Romans from Israel, and they would establish a new power in Israel with a Jewish king reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. That's what they all thought. That's what they were looking for the Messiah to do, to throw off the yoke of Rome. And so these guys thought that maybe Jesus is just that guy. So they waited and they watched. And they waited, and they watched, and Judas waited and watched, but Judas, for Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end. Judas knew that as Jesus rose to power as one of Jesus' guys, that he would also come to power. 
if Jesus is going to be this king that's going to rule Israel, and I'm his followers at the beginning, then I'm going to rise to power. There were some things about Jesus, though, that just really bugged Judas. Jesus went too slow. So Judas is watching all of this and is thinking, when? When? When is all of this going to get kicked off? And then there's this incident in Bethany. This incident was the last straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. This is what drove Judas over the edge. And I want to tell you that story because I think there's a little bit of Judas in all of us, if we're honest, as we look at our hearts. There's something in me, something in you, that has an agenda, and God has an agenda, and I really want to figure out how I can get God to work on my plan according to my agenda and not God's agenda. In fact, it's why some of you are in church this morning. Maybe you haven't been in several weeks, but things aren't going good in your life, and you think, maybe I should get back into church, and God will go, oh yeah, I see you in church. Let me throw some blessings and favor your way, because you're in church today. You don't know how God works, but you don't care, because things aren't going well, and you'll just try anything. You're wondering, is it some kind of combination like going to church three weeks in a row, saying a few prayers, throwing a little offering in, taking my vitamins? Is, is that it? Is that how this works? Is there some kind of magic combination that God says, oh, now you're worthy of my attention? You're a consumer, if that's your attitude. And that's okay, because we all start there, but we want to move you beyond that. At some point in following Jesus, your agenda and your Heavenly Father's agenda for you are going to come into conflict. And what are you going to do? In that moment, it's going to tell you a lot about yourself. It'll be a defining moment. So here is the story of Judas, and this is how the whole thing goes down. And it's recorded in multiple Gospels that we'll look at this morning. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? You know, Jesus has this very expensive perfume. It's running down his head. Running down his chair onto the floor, it cannot be gathered up, back up. It's like throwing money away in the eyes of the disciples. Why is this woman doing this? Verse 9. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now imagine, this has to be a very awkward moment at the dinner table with the disciples and Jesus. You know, this makes me think of like, that Jesus and his disciples knew this family very well, because I, I, I can't imagine that they would be this bold with the guests. Now, that Matthew's account, that's Matthew's account, and John was also an eyewitness to the event. And John writes this down. John records a story in his gospel, but he gives a little detail that Matthew leaves out, John chapter 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given 
to the poor. So apparently, as we'll find out later, Judas has his own agenda. I can imagine Judas probably leaning over to Thaddeus during this event and saying, Thaddeus, how much do you think we could have gotten for that flask of alabaster oil? It was very, very expensive. It's about a year's wages. Can you believe how ridiculous this is? So Judas is the one that gets this thing started, verse 6. And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So here's the deal. When Jesus rounded up these disciples... And he put this group of misfits together as his posse to be his followers. Judas, he would look at them and Judas would say, hey, what if I act as the treasurer? We're definitely not going to make Matthew the treasurer because he was the tax collector. And nobody trusted Matthew. But what about Judas? What if we make Judas the person who controls the money bag? So Judas is the one keeping track of the money because they have to support themselves as they travel around Israel. And people would donate money to Jesus, and, and it was Judas's job to be the treasurer of that money. So now do you see why Judas is the one making the comment, we should have sold that, not because he cared for the poor, but because his own personal finances would have benefited from it because John's telling us he's a thief and he's taking things out of the money bags. Judas's personal agenda was so strong that he was able to follow Jesus and then at the same time use Jesus for his own ends. Now Jesus knew the hearts of men. One of the cool things that Jesus did was answer people's questions before they asked them because he knew what was on the hearts of men. And I love it when Jesus does this in Scripture. Matthew 26, it says, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. You see, Jesus, the Passion Week is coming. It's imminent. And I'm sure at this point, Peter's probably thinking, here we go again, talking about death, burial, and dying. Jesus, knock it off. What do you mean you're going to die and be buried? The disciples just don't get to this point. Verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. <laughs> Do you want me to tell you what's interesting about prophecy? Is we today, reading this passage and teaching on it, are in part a fulfillment of Jesus' words to that woman that day. When the story says of me is told across the world, this story will be included in the story 2,000 Years later, this prophecy has rung true millions of times. Now, here's what happens next, verse 14. And then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? The next verse. It's like Judas had said, that's it. I've had enough. I can't take any more. If you're going to throw the money away, if you're going to be that irresponsible, I don't care anymore. I'm done. I'm out. So Judas goes to the chief priest and says, I know what your problem is. Your problem is that you want to get Jesus and arrest him, but you can't find anywhere where there's not a multitude of people around. And if you know if you arrest him with all of the multitude of people around, that the mob will get you. The mob will turn on you. That's your problem. Here's what I can do for you. I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to find a time when he is isolated and alone, and you can grab him. What will you pay me for that? It says in the next verse, And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas, do you understand that this is the man whose hands have touched the lame and they have walked and touched the blind and they have seen. Judas, do you remember when you were out on the Sea of Galilee and the wind and the seas obeyed him? And you think you have the power <laughs> and the intellectual capacity to hand him over without him knowing when Jesus reads the hearts of men? Come on, Judas. It's absurd when you think about it in that context, but we are almost as guilty sometimes when we think about how we pray and how we treat God. We think God is someone we can manipulate into our world and get him to do what we want when we want. And then we tell him to stay in the corner until we need him again. And we do that maybe not verbally, but we do with our actions and the thoughts and intents of our heart. Maybe it's something like, you know, I'm not going to take you with me, God, on spring break. I'm going to have my time of my life. On this business trip I've got coming up, you know what? I'm going to have some fun with my coworkers, and God, I'm going to just put you in my back pocket until I need you, and then I will pull you out again. That God does not exist for someone who is a true follower of Christ. Judas is the same way because he thinks he is going to hand Jesus over to the authorities. Judas is going to learn the hard lesson that I hope all of us can learn the easy way, and it's simply this. This is what I want you to get away, take away from today. Write this down. God's hand can, cannot be forced, and his will cannot be thwarted. God's hand cannot be forced, and his will cannot be thwarted. Now, 2,000 years, people have tried to figure out, why did Judas do this? This question has been asked time and time again. Why did Judas do this? The only thing we can guess is, based on the things he did before and after, is that somehow Judas thought by taking this action, he could force Jesus' hand to come out as the king and overthrow Rome. And Jesus wasn't going fast enough for Judas. Perhaps if he delivered him over to his enemies, 
it would force Jesus' hand. Of course, they're not going to let anything bad happen to him. Every time they tried to arrest him before, he just simply slipped into their fingers or slipped through their fingers and got away. So we'll just have to assume that Judas thought Jesus wasn't about to let anything bad happen to them. He was just going to speed up the process and get richer doing it. So during Passover, he hears that Jesus is going to take the 12 disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray alone. So Judas slips out of the dinner early and sends a message to the chief priests and Pharisees to meet him with the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. You arrest the man that I kiss. So pay attention and don't arrest the wrong guy because I, Judas, I'm going to hand Jesus over to you. Matthew chapter 27 tells us, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So it happened just as Judas had planned. They met in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Pharisees and the chief priests, they arrested Jesus. They brought him back to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. They had a sham of a trial there that evening. And they decided that they wanted to put Jesus to death. And Jesus is, or Judas is probably thinking, oh no, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to arrest him. You're supposed to punish him according to the Jewish law. Judas knew that the Jews did not have the authority to put anyone to death. Only the Romans had that. So we have to assume that Judas thought when they arrested him and he got before all of the religious leaders, Jesus would reveal to the religious leaders who he truly was. But Judas' plan starts unraveling because they are turning him over to Rome, which means that Rome could care less about Jesus being a Messiah. In fact, Rome would want to put to death anyone who would go against Rome. And this wasn't supposed to happen. This wasn't the way that Judas had planned it out in his mind. Verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See it to yourself. Essentially said, we don't care. We don't care. We don't care that now you have a guilty conscience for what you've done. You're responsible for the outcome of this journey, Judas. Now, Judas wants to back up. Judas wants to undo what he did. And Judas wants to go back to the moment at the Passover and decide not to betray Jesus. But there are certain trains, when they leave the station, you can't get them back. Certain decisions that once you make them, you cannot unmake them. You can receive forgiveness, but the circumstances are what we make them. Verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple... He departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. For Judas, this is a situation that was impossible for him to live with. But still, we look here. So Judas is gone. 
Jesus has been arrested. Jesus, Jesus is tried and Jesus is crucified. Jesus dies, but God's hand can't be forced and his will can't be thwarted. And this strange, crazy, unique, almost Hollywood type way, God's will was actually accomplished through Judas's horrible decision. That's crazy for us to think about, isn't it? God's plan actually unfolded as a result of the decision Judas made to betray him. It's as if God's hand can't be forced and his will can't be thwarted. Now, what does that have to do with you and me today? How does this story apply to us? Simply this. That when we all get in the game and start following Jesus, we have a plan. Hang, hanging on to it, and we say, God, I need you to help me with my plan. I have a will, and God, I would like to think that your will and my will, we can jive those together. That's what we like to think. Not your will be done, but thy will and my will. Let's get the two of those together on the same page and make it be done. Along the way, as you begin to follow Jesus, this my will, my will, my way, my plan begins to, as we become moved from consumers to true followers, God begins to pry our hands open and realize that there's a conflict between my will and thy will it's that in that conflict that you learn so much about yourself it's in that conflict that judah's story becomes a bit of your story because there's competing agendas because you can't have god's way and your way when this happens it will feel like a moral imperative like this is something you have to do or this is something you shouldn't do. In that moment, you will know because your conscience will light up and there will be a raging conflict in your soul. On the outside, your words will say, oh yeah, this is what I should do. Oh yeah, this is not that big of a deal. Oh yeah, nothing's going to happen if I do this. But on the inside, there's this war between what God wants for you and what you want for you, and your agenda and God's agenda just will not be synced up, and you will be miserable because you know it. It also is what makes up a defining moment for you. And this is why you don't have to fear that. Because it's in your deciding to follow Jesus in those moments when your will and God's will are in conflict. It's in those moments you discover whose you truly are. Are you a follower of Christ or something else? It's in those moments you decide, I truly belong to him. It's in those moments you move from being a consumer to a follower. It's in those moments you have to trust God to catch you. The bottom line is this. God, I want what you want more than what I want. 
And that's a tough one. God, I want what you want more than what I want. So here's what I want you to take away from this message. I'm going to make it just a little easier for you to remember. I want to desire what you desire more than what I desire. It's not easy. We've all been there. We've all seen or heard stories of people who made extraordinary sacrifices for their faith, and you just thought, that is amazing. But I don't think I can do that. You've seen people stay together and fight through a difficult marriage that were Christians, and they said they're going to figure this thing out, and you looked at them and you said, I don't know if I have that in me, but that is amazing. Students, you've seen other kids at school make incredible stands for their faith. And you say, wow, I don't think I could ever do that. I don't think I could be that. I, I, I would think that if I was in that situation, I don't know that I could do that. I, I want to want that. I want to do that. Now, this is why this is important. When you find yourself in that situation as a Jesus follower, the temptation is to say, God, it's just too hard. I don't want what you want, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do what you want me to do. In those moments, if you will just stop, let your heart rest for a moment and pray something like this. Heavenly Father, to be honest, I don't want to break up with him. To be honest, I don't want to move. To be honest, I don't want to leave that job. I just want to do your will. But this is a very maturing prayer. And this is a prayer that God understands. I want to desire what you desire more than what I desire. That's a hard prayer. God, I want to desire and change my heart to desire. Change the desires of my heart to what you desire. Would you just stay there with that heart attitude long enough for your heavenly Father to begin to pry open the grip you have around the desires of your heart to allow you to do his will and not your will. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't stop Judas from doing what Judas intended to do. But neither did Judas stop Jesus from what Jesus intended to do. That's what I find interesting about this story. I have a feeling that your heavenly father won't stop you from doing what you intend to do. And I think that alone, knowing the story of Judas, should scare us. Should scare us to death. Because Judas went down a road he wishes he could come back on. But again, there are things that cannot be undone. I think if Judas were here, he would say something along these lines. Blessed is the one who chooses to do the will of God rather than attempting to impose his will on God. Blessed is the one who gives in to the agenda of God rather than attempting to impose their own will because at the end of the day, as smart as you are, as connected as you are, as resourced as you are, 
You cannot force the hand of God. You can't thwart the will of God, and that is a wonderful thing. It means that God is God and we are not. It means that when we sing and pray and worship, we are serving the almighty, sovereign God of the universe whose will cannot be thwarted. And I'm not changing my mind because we love this God. God will say, you're going to look back on a day that you decided to trust me instead of walking away from me. You're going to look back with a sign of relief beyond the circumstances of the story and say that was the moment. That was the intersection. That was the season of my life when God became real to me. And to think I almost missed it for something so small and so insignificant that my heart desired at that moment. So get in the game and follow Christ because God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be thwarted. Let's pray.